1: I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley.
2: This week... A boy's best friend is his mother.
1: Get me a vodka rocks.
2: Mom, it's breakfast. And a piece of toast. There
3: are no rules in this house. I'm not like a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. Sweetie, I'm a mom traveling with my kids. For me, this is not a vacation. It's a business trip. I'm just like any modern woman, trying to have it all. A loving husband, a family.
0: It's just I wish I had
3: more time to seek out the dark forces
2: and join their hellish crusade
3: i'm not a dealer i'm a mother who happens to distribute illegal products through a sham bakery set up by my ethically
1: questionable cpa and his crooked lawyer friend mommy mama 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 what hi it's Mother's Day, so we're raising a glass to mamas everywhere. First, our favorite pop culture moms from TV, movies, and music. How mothers like Claire Huxtable and Marge Simpson helped to define what it's like to be a mom in America. Later in the show, did you buy mom a unique gift this Mother's Day? Handmade is trending. Here's what's popular in the world of handcrafted DIY and artisanal goods found right here in Boston. But first, joining me in the studio, Michael Jeffries, Professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Welcome, Michael. Hi. Rachel Rubin, Professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts Boston. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Callie. And Irene Mata, Associate Professor of Women's and Gender Studies at Wellesley College. Welcome, Irene. Hello, Callie. I'm so glad to have you all here. I want to give everybody who just heard that clip a little pop culture cheat sheet in case you didn't catch all the mom references. That was Norman Bates' shower slashing son in the movie Psycho. Lucille Bluth in Arrested Development like Savodka Breakfast, Mrs. George rules as a cool mom and mean girls, modern family's Claire Dumpy escapes kids on business trips. Morticia from the Adams Family needs darkness. Nancy Botwin deals marijuana in weeds, and finally Stewie annoys the irritated. Lois Griffin in the animated series Family Guy. So, pop culture and motherhood, it's everywhere and it's all very different. I want to go around the horn quickly with each of you and just get you to talk a little bit about how pop culture has helped shape the image of mothers. Michael, I'll start with you.
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the things that pop culture does, right, in addition to entertaining us, is it's supposed to reflect some societal values, but we all know that it does so much more than that, right? It really shapes our societal values. And when you look at some of these classic representations of motherhood, uh, especially in the late 20th century, you saw the balance, the kind of work-life balance become more of a prominent theme in some film and television shows. And that reflects changes in the general population. So at a very kind of basic level, right, showing a more realistic depiction of what it is to be a working mom is a great place to start in thinking about how pop culture shapes our motherhood.
1: Irene?
0: And to build on that, I think another thing that we see happening in the late 20th century is a different type of mother being represented. So thinking about the debate around single motherhood that Murphy Brown started back in 92, and the ways in which single motherhood as a representation has changed drastically since that time. And so how is it that as a society, we've come to either demonize single motherhood or celebrate it? I think we have cultural productions now that are really beginning to offer us much more complex and complicated representations of what does it mean to mother as a single parent. And Rachel?
3: Uh, Yeah, I hope they're more complicated. i recently been finding them sort of depressing as showing there's now this movement of choice staying at home you know mothers but it's yes it's interesting that you mentioned the thing about Murphy Brown of course because like the one person who went after her the most is Dan Quayle right and he campaigned saying like no she shouldn't be a working mother she should be home. Former vice president former yes excuse me former vice president Mm -hmm. Dan Quayle and then there's this very famous scene when she has a baby and she's singing to the baby aretha franklin's you make me feel like a natural woman so that again is sort of like saying motherhood is natural and sort of certain kinds of motherhood and defining it for us again
1: Let me start with you, Rachel, because you said that your favorite mother in pop culture is one I would not have picked, Edna Turnblad, played by Divine in the movie Hairspray, and her daughter Tracy was played by Ricky Lake, and here's a scene with Edna Turnblad talking to her daughter and her friend Penny, played by Leslie Ann Powers. Tracy, I have told you about that hair, all ratted up like a teenage Jezebel. Oh,
3: Mother, you're so 50s. Uh, Tracy's flamboyant flip is all the rage, Miss Edna. Jackie Kennedy, our first lady, even rats her hair.
1: But Tracy ain't no first lady, are you, Tracy? No, sir. She's a hair hopper. That's what she is. Now, I've got nothing but hampers of ironing to do, and my diet pill is wearing off. Now there's a lot going on in that scene in that characterization of motherhood by divine. <laughs>
3: right. So first of all, it being divine takes the natural element out of it in many ways as divine was born biologically male and so I like the way that stacks up against the you make me feel like a natural woman. But the thing about Edna Turnblad's character is she not just like evolves, she evolves into this mother who just wants her daughter to find her own way to express herself, who's really proud. Of of her daughter when she takes on the segregation of Baltimore's radio scene. I totally admire that. She's not just about staying at home and making the food and yelling, do your homework, Missy.
1: I also thought, Michael, that the hair piece, the whole thing about ratting your hair and being outside of what was considered to be acceptable at that time was very interesting.
2: Oh, no question. I mean, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I think is important to note here is when we think about these pop cultural representations and the characters they play, especially when we're talking about film and television, women's bodies are always being read and consumed by large swaths of male consumers, right? So anytime we're dealing with the politics of hair, the politics of dress, these are not insignificant choices that the screenwriters, and in some cases the actors, when they have control over what they look like, are making. They know they're going to be perceived in a certain way, criticized in a certain way, and there's a politics involved there.
3: And uh, excuse me, I just Mm -hmm. want to say John Waters Mm -hmm. takes on all of that, right, Mm -hmm. because one of the big things he confronts is people's judging of women for body
1: size. So let me pick up on that. And this comes together a little bit with something that you wanted to talk about, Irene, which is about the representation of Latinx motherhood. And I picked a cut from Real Women Have Curves, which really speaks to Mm -hmm. the body image thing and also speaks to seeing A different kind of mother, not the mother that people have been led to believe is universal. So this is Carmen Garcia, played by Lupe Ontiveros, telling her daughters Anna and Estella, played by America Ferrara and Ingrid Olia, respectively, that what she thinks that they should do to improve their lives. And Anna fires back.
0: The two of you should lose weight. Aren't you ashamed? Mama,
3: you look just like us. Yes, but I'm married. Oh, so that's it? Make myself attractive so that I can catch a man. Mama... I do want to lose weight. But part of me doesn't because my weight says to everybody, I've been my How dare anybody try to tell me what I should look like or what I should be when there's so much more to me than just my weight?
1: So, again, a lot going on there because, first of all, we have America Ferrara, who has really come forward as a role model. I know people hate to use that term, but in many ways and on many programs, representing a young Latina woman in a way that we hadn't seen before. And then there's a discussion about the whole weight issue, and and there's the mom exchange. So, Renee, weigh in.
0: So I think that Real Women Have Curves is a wonderful film that offers a really beautiful representation, I think, of the issue of body image and owning one's own sexuality and young Chicanx feminism. I do think it's fascinating, though, thinking about representation, the kinds of changes that were made to the script, because Mm -hmm. the movie is based on a script, a play that continues to be one of the most produced Latinx productions in theater today. And in the script, the representation of Carmen is very, very different. I think in the film, we have a much more traditional representation of Carmen as this Latinx mother who suffers, who oftentimes takes out their frustration on their daughters. The plight of minority
1: mothers. Exactly. (laughs)
0: Okay. And so she actually fits in that mold much more comfortably in the film than in the play. In the play, she's a much more supportive figure. And I think it's also important to mention that in the play, we have no men. There are mm. no men represented in the play. Um, and in the film, we have a husband and we have a grandfather and we have a schoolteacher who become the inspirations for Anna to go to college, right? In the film, it's a community of women whose mother is a big part of that. So there is this kind of interesting shift in the ways and even how the transition from play to film kind of goes back to this very comfortable stereotype of Latinx motherhood.
1: So now as we're moving ahead, and I'm going to play a clip a little bit later of some more modern representations of Latina mothers, the question for me is, are these moms now as portrayed in pop culture, even, Michael, when you started off saying, well, there's some issues, and all of you say that, transformative, you know, in a way now? Because even if they're flawed, I'm going to recognize that there's flaws in all of their representation. It's so... I think far away from the apron people, from the women, the, the woman that was with the apron and the cookies at the end of the day, you know, who was white and had a you know little fluffy hairdo. We seem to have at least moved there in pop culture.
2: I think there's no question about it. I think some of what's happened here is my colleagues have described. We've seen a, a wide range. And you're talking about ethnicity. You're talking about generation. A much wider range of representations. So even that, right, destroying the idea that the mother's a certain age, a certain ethnicity, and that all consumers, if you want to consume pop culture, have to deal with that model. That's gone. Right? It doesn't mean the available models are perfect or it doesn't mean the available models are going to lead us to liberation, but at least we have choice. And now, I think one of the next steps in this pop cultural evolution is the extent to which stars who portray mothers or who are mothers themselves are able to take ownership of their brand and their representation. So just off the top of my head, right, the person who sort of most embodies this is someone like Beyonce whose turn toward motherhood right, whose experience with motherhood has been lived out in public in ways that She endeavors to control at basically every single turn. And that kind of control is something that goes beyond just having diverse representations, right? It's about shaping your own narrative and connecting with fans and other onlookers in ways that aren't prescribed by uh, your agent, by the film production company, or by your record label.
1: That's my guest, Michael Jeffries. He's from Wellesley College. Rachel Rubin, UMass Boston, would you weigh in on that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I totally, I see what you're saying, and it gives me a little lift to hear it. But we have to remember that when people like Beyonce are making these powerful gestures, and they're really important, that there are also elements of the system that really push back. So, for example, in the TV series Modern Family, Mm -hmm. right, there are some things about it that really do move forward. But I think all of the women in it are stay-at-home mothers, So, you know, one of the things that that dynamic brings to mind, of course, is the sitcom Bewitched. The suburban housewife in the show has magical powers that she can use to clean the house and so forth. But she agrees to give them up to get married. And it's Mm. this messy little moment because she doesn't give them up. You know, and so it's this messy little moment where the women's movement of that era is just about to start. And the makers of the show seem to be saying, all right, all right, you're powerful, but please say you won't use it. You know, please (laughs) say you'll give it up, right? (laughs) So it's just very important to sort of notice, I guess, one of the things I like about what Michael is saying is that it reminds us that this is a conversation, that there are a lot of people shaping the meaning, the creators of the the mother images, the consumers of the mother images, the, you know, TV shows, the advertisers, all of that sort of shapes the image of mother.
1: And I would be remiss if I didn't say that in a lot of these writers' rooms, we're talking about white men, still primarily. There yes. There's big changes in writers' rooms now. There are some women, and there certainly are some folks of color, and there are some folks of color who are women. But for the most part, when you're talking about people shaping images like this, they're coming from white men. So, Irina, you weigh in on, on the same subject, if um, you would. So I think uh, Modern Family
0: Office is a really interesting example of character growth or not character growth. Modern family has made its reputation on stereotypes. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be making fun of these stereotypes at the same time that it embraces them. And I think one of the things that's most fascinating for me in thinking about how certain women are represented on that show, you know, we have Claire Dumphy, who is a stay-at-home mom for a big portion of the show, but now she's running her father's business, Mm -hmm. right? So she's been allowed to step outside of that home, of course, going into another patriarchal space that is controlled by her father. But the story arc has really allowed her to come into her own as a stay-at-home mother who goes back to work and faces the struggles but is now really embracing her positionality as the kind of the CEO of this corporation. Gloria, on the other hand, the other mother that we have on the show, has not grown at all. In fact, she's just had another child, and we never see her do anything other than walk around in these beautiful heels and tight clothing and mothering, over-mothering, in fact. She's cloying to Manny, and, and we have this sense that Manny doesn't grow into a full masculine man because of this Latina mother. And I'm curious to see how the younger child is going to develop, if they're going to continue to kind of perpetuate this image of this Latina mother as overly sexual and just a maternal body that's there either for the needs of her male children or the needs of her very wealthy husband. So she's never left the space of the trophy wife.
1: Let's take a listen to Gloria Delgado Pritchett, played by Sofia Vergara, who's talking to her husband in this clip, Jay, played by Ed O'Neill, about supporting her son, Manny, played by Rico Rodriguez.
0: To be the winning his back, not the spit in his face. What? Something my mom always says is gorgeous in Spanish.
1: So she's been a flashpoint for some people who think it's just pure stereotype and others who say it's really a breakthrough character. So that's kind of sort of where I was getting at. It. Are we transformative in some way when Michael started this sort of round of conversation? And you are seeming to suggest that not in this character, at least. <laughs> I think Gloria is, is a,
0: I want to say complicated character, but it's hard to say that. Um, With a straight face. Because I think one of the things that a lot of scholars in the field have been writing about Gloria is how, in fact, she embodies a long history of Latina representation, right? She is the Mexican spitfire, but now Colombian. Mm. Uh, She is the harlot that we saw in the early 20th century films that represented Latinidad. She's a buffoon. She's the clown. Mm-hmm. So she's actually all of these different representations that we've been living with since the beginning of film, she continues to embody those. So it's really hard to take that seriously, especially the ways in which that character that she plays on TV isn't just left in modern family. right? And there's been a lot of critiques of Sofia Vergara outside of modern family continuing to replicate these stereotypes. And I think it goes back to what you were saying about how in these writer rooms, we still have a complete lack of diversity. Like We do not have a lot of women of color or people of color in these writers' rooms, which actually brings me to one of my favorite cultural productions of right now, One Day at a Time,
1: which is actually written Mm -hmm. by Gloria Calderon Kellett. Let's take a listen. This is from One Day at a Time, Season 1, Episode 1. The grandmother, Lydia Riera, played by Rita Moreno, is speaking to her daughter, Penelope Alvarez, played by Justina Machado, who is speaking to her daughter about the Latin tradition of the quinceanera.
0: Your daughter
3: does not want to have a quince. What? Why, we already booked the room and I found a great band. Okay, it's your brother with an iPod and a playlist, but it's a very good playlist. I researched the history of quinceaneras and found out they're totally misogynistic. She's been reading again, why do you let her read? I know, Mommy, I let her do math too, I'm a monster.
1: I just love that. So that feels very warm, friendly family, but just different experience.
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the the show is really smart that it, it does play with stereotypes, mm-hmm. but it doesn't stay there. So, in fact, throughout the season, we learn the reason why Penelope wants Elena to have a quinceanera. And it's about her own issues being a single mother and wanting people to feel like she has been successful in parenting this child that it's not necessarily about the old script that comes along with the quinceanera. And Rita Moreno's character, the grandmother, Lydia actress
1: who can say I love Rita Moreno. Anyway, am- go ahead
0: is yeah. absolutely amazing <laughs> yeah. on this show. Yeah. Right. And she plays with a lot of those stereotypes. But at the end of the day, she also happens to be one of the strongest supporters not only of her daughter, but also of her grandchildren. And even though there's moments where she falls back on these scripts of, you know, where's your husband, you need your husband She really listens to her daughter and is there for her in a way that I think embodies this type of parenting, of mothering that doesn't just happen with one mother, right? That, in fact, it's this, like, familial connection, you know, to use that phrase, it takes a village. Like, what we see in One Day at a Time is a village of people who love each other and help take care of each other.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Irene Mata of Wellesley College. You just heard her, Michael Jeffries of Wellesley College, and Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. And we're discussing our favorite moms in pop culture Want to switch it up a little bit and go to music because a lot of you have talked about some of the messages from music. I found it interesting, Michael, that your female colleagues here this morning picked both Tupac and Kanye West songs as ones that resonated with them talking about motherhood. So let's hear a little bit of "Hey Mama" by Kanye West. This is from the album "The College Dropout," two thousand (laughs)
0: four so proud of you and I nah, 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 let me nah, tell you what nah. I'm about to do nah, nah. I know I act a fool nah, nah, I promise nah, nah. you I'm going back to school
1: nah, 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 I appreciate what you allow for me nah, nah, I, nah, I just want nah, to I you to nah. be proud I want me me to tell day day day. the whole world I'm out of Okay, so that's Kanye West. Let's take a little listen to Dear Mama by Tupac Shakur. He's also a rapper. This is from the album Me Against the World
3: 1995. I finally
2: understand for a woman it ain't easy trying to raise a man what's committed a poor single mother on welfare
1: tell me how you did there's no way i can pay you back but the plan is to show you that i understand you all appreciate it so I like both of the songs. I mean I like all the mama songs, I have to say. I like country western mama songs, I like every kind of mama song, <laughs> to just <laughs> to be clear. But these two are interesting because particularly with Tupac's Rachel and I know this is right at your heart. He deals with class and talking about, hey, I know the struggle. I also speaks to single motherhood as well.
3: Yes, uh-huh. and I really and I it's uh-huh. important for me uh-huh. any time to see somebody uh-huh. connects parenting to class but also to labor. Because, I mean, even the term that we use, stay-at-home mom, doesn't, like, talk about the domestic labor that she's actually performing. And so that, I think, is, Callie, by the way, why there are so many hip-hop songs about mothers and there are so many country songs about mothers. It is like both of them have a focus on work in different ways that other kinds of American popular music don't as much one of my favorite is a song called Mama Was a Working Man mm. that says she made a living and a home. And if the proof is known, she may work twice as hard for half to pay, which is like pretty sophisticated economic analysis. And who a, did that? In so? a country song, um, Becky Hobbs. Okay. Mm. And so this is happening in hip hop, too. It's like very sophisticated economic analysis that is just is, is being stitched into family structures because that's one of the things families are for. And so I, I totally appreciate that.
2: Michael, what do you think? There's such important representations for American pop culture and for hip-hop specifically. And when it comes to hip-hop and representations of black masculinity, they serve a couple of different roles, right? One is, in some cases, sadly, when you have these kinds of songs, they can become a kind of protective armor that the rapper uses to shield himself against attacks that are driven by misogynistic representations in the music. You can say, hey, I'm not sexist, right? Look at this song about my mom, right? That's a a kind of classic piece of this, right? So that's one thing. On the other hand, they're also, I think, symptomatic of other issues with masculinity and vulnerability, right? So you have these tough guy performances Mm. from acts like Kanye and Tupac and so many others, but you also have an extremely kind of vulnerable side to their public and also private lives that you see coming out in these songs. And it adds a layer of complexity, right, where you say, what is it about the condition of black men, in particular, poor black men that demands both kinds of performances, Mm -hmm. demands the vulnerable exultation and celebration of motherhood, while also a kind of hard exterior about dominating men and women, right? So it's a really important key to unlocking these kinds of conversations in rap and popular culture more broadly.
1: And uh, Renee, I thought it was also kind of a chronicle of Communities that a lot of people are unaware of as you listen to their experiences about how their mother is navigating in the space. That was probably brand new information for a lot of people listening and sort of bopping along to the rhythm. No,
0: absolutely. (laughs) I think when these songs came out, I think people were surprised at the narrative that they were giving us, right? Because we have these two very masculine figures who made careers based on the kind of like fierceness of their black masculinity. And to show this vulnerability was, I think, very important um, in these moments in their careers. And I also think that there's something about that music. The reason I, I brought up those two songs in my initial um, response was because I feel very connected to them, even though I have nothing in common with Kanye or Tupac. Mm. Right? My daughter made me a CD one year of all of these songs from Mother's Day. And those were the two songs that were on there that really just made me cry when I heard them. Because not only did it connect me to my daughter, but it also connected me to my own mother and to the struggles that my mother as a woman Mm -hmm. of color and immigrant who worked very, very hard, but whose life was never acknowledged in a mainstream realm. I connected with that, I think. And that's something that I think is really powerful about these two songs, that we don't necessarily have to understand the life that the songs are representing, but we can understand the love that these two young men are speaking about for their mothers, right? Mm -hmm. And it connects to something that we have, right, that we feel. And so my own son, a few years ago, for his Mother's Day gift, recorded a version of Hey Mama for me. Oh, wow. That's That's really sweet. sweet. Because he wanted, (laughs) that was, I think, one of the ways in which he could show emotion as a young man of color, still be tough, still be cool. Right, but show emotion and show that, Mom, I love you. I may not say it very often, I may not know how to express that yet. But here's this song that Kanye wrote
1: that makes me think of it. And you. it's kinda of what Michael said, it gives they've been given permission by these these Absolutely. tough guys who are also showing this other side. Absolutely. And yeah. it also speaks
2: mm. to yet another role mm. that pop culture can play for us, right? And, and as much as it's shaping some of these conversations, we also as consumers we're using pop culture as tools to do things that we need it to, right? Mm. So if we're young men who are having trouble expressing emotions in a way that's kind of publicly acceptable, we can use the music to do that, or we can dress like a character we see to signal something to either our friends or our parents. So it's a very important toolkit, especially for young people who maybe don't have the vocabulary or don't have the courage to step outside the lines that are prescribed for them by gender, ethnicity, race, social class, et cetera. So
1: I want to talk about African-American models and to give you two examples of sort of a range of how they've been portrayed. So the first is from Good Times. This is Florida Evans, played by Esther Rolls, who is reaming at her husband after attempting to cook a batch of oatmeal and get ready for work and get the family on their way out for the day. Tell you something, Florida, if you took your bath last night when you were supposed to, you could have got up, made this oatmeal without no mess, fixed my buttons so I get to work on time.
0: Now where you going?
1: I've got a job, too, and I've got to get to work on time. Now, if you want that button sewed, you sew it yourself. And if you want breakfast, make it yourself. Then make the lunch for the children. Wash the dishes, do the laundry, make the beds, and sweep the floor. And see how you'd like being mother housewife, diplomat, referee, counselor, cook, seamstress, and sparring partner with no pay and no fringe benefits. All right, that's one image of the African-American mom. Fast forward to The Cosby Show, 1985. This is Denise Huxtable, played by Lisa Bonet, getting her driver's license and wants to buy a car with her money. Her mother, Claire, played by Felicia Rashad, lays down the law.
3: It's my money in my bank account in my name. You're acting like I'm asking you for your money, and I'm not. It's my money and I can do what I want with it. Are we still in America or what? You see, you're ready to plunge in and buy this car just like you were with that bracelet, the waterbed, and the dead fish. Mm -hmm. And at this point in your life you can do pretty much what you please because you know in the back of your mind that we're always there to bail you out. We're your safety net. Mm
0: -hmm. You
3: see, we're so good at it, half the time you don't even know we're doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, your father and I accept that responsibility because we're your parents. And you better remember that young lady because if you ever take this attitude with us again you can take whatever is in that bank account of yours and go discover america (laughs)
1: All right. So, Rachel, there are some themes that cross over, but there's a real difference in the representation of of the seriously working class mom, actually the poor mom by Florida Evans, and the well-off, she could stay at home if she wanted to, but she doesn't, Claire Huxtable, who's a lawyer and very, very upper-middle class. Your response. Yes.
3: And I think it's absolutely important to point out that the job the mom has in the first clip is that she works in some white woman's kitchen. Mm -hmm. So for her... Domestic work is both work at home and work in somebody else's home. And so it's sort of interesting to think about how those two things come together. But it is a sort of big, messy mass of different signifiers. Um, And that particular scene is quite profound because she is informing her husband that what she's doing at home is actually work. And he needs to not only acknowledge it as such, but he needs to do it
0: so he can see that it's work. Rene? Yeah, I think um, the second clip that you played from the Cosby show, I I find it fascinating because I think it gets to attention that we oftentimes see in middle class and upper middle class homes of people of color where class is no longer the same kind of issue right that, that working class women face right in fact now it becomes how do you raise your children to respect not just the privilege that you have right but your parents as still the, the people in charge of your life without it becoming this kind of oppressive relationship and i love that clip because it really illustrates how you know denise is this young impassioned very uh, self possessed young woman but it is still her mother's role to kind of lead her in a direction that says, you know, just because you have this money doesn't mean you can just spend it however you want. There's still consequences. And I see that also kind of thinking about how this discussion of class and how parenting is affected by class privilege is represented mm. in Blackish, right? Because so much of the premise of Blackish Good is point. like, how do you parent children when you have access to wealth and resources now that you didn't have as a child? So how does that change the ways in which we parent, right, upward mobility? How does that change how
1: we parent our children? So, Michael, weigh in on it. And what is pop culture taking from all of the experiences of both of these women as they've been expressed in this way?
2: I'll take the first part first on the the Cosby clip and this issue of privilege. One of the other pieces of this clip that your comments direct me toward is... Despite the economic privilege, the proximity to danger that Claire still tries to communicate to her black daughter, right? And the racial component of that is unspoken. But for many uh, financially stable families of color, that stability is not the exact same type of stability that white families have. If you look at the neighborhoods that black and Latino in particular families live in. They do not resemble the neighborhoods of white families with similar financial standing. They do not have the wealth reserves that white families do, multi-generational wealth reserves that white families do. And their children are subject to a fundamentally different kind of surveillance in white spaces, right, and different kinds of penalties in school, in the workplace, than are white children. So, In part, it's about just teaching these general life lessons about respect and parenting. But in part, there's a nod to a different kind of danger, a proximity to danger that wealth will not enable you to escape from no matter how rich you get. So that's one. I think, key piece of it that we can certainly apply to today. Just in putting those clips side by side, the range of representations is so important, right? And the range of representations isn't just important because different people can kind of see themselves in different places, but because they force fundamentally different conversations about the politics of work and gender. Like, these are really different kinds of conversations. The generational component of it is huge as well because thinking of someone who's not only a parent to a child... But the rest of your life doesn't fall away, whether it's work outside the home, whether it's your romantic partnership, whether it's uh, your relationship with your family. All of those things are still a huge part of you, and you can feel the characters trying to negotiate those problems in each of the clips.
1: That's my guest Michael Jeffries. He's from Wellesley College. Before him, you heard Irene Mata of Wellesley College, and then Rachel Rubin of UMass Boston. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley. A couple of years ago, I was an interesting article written by a woman who said that motherhood has become a lifestyle. And that's how it's projected. And she had some issues with that, the author of the article saying that the culture is so besotted with all things mom and mommy, mommy and me yoga classes and mommy and me Manny Petties and mommy makeovers and all of this that it's been elevated, she said, to a lifestyle with demands and expectations that eclipse everything else in a woman's life. I'm wondering or how you think pop culture may have fostered that as a lifestyle.
3: Every single way you can think of, I mean, the the thing that sort of I see as like the red flag for that is everybody's sudden obedient use of the word mom Mm. instead of mother. And I remember one time sitting in my daughter's like fourth grade class or something at a parents' event, and everybody was going around and saying, you know, I'm Rebecca's mom. You know, I'm David's mom. I said, I'm Jesse's mother. So I think that there is this sort of like leveling effect that language actually does perform. That it is a full lifestyle. Um, Another thing we've been talking about is, I mean, we need to acknowledge that the ability to stay at home with your child and devote everything to that is class-based, yes. right? Like working-class women have to find some child care and work. So um, there are all these people who get law degrees and then stay home because it is now being put forward as a kind of a lifestyle everywhere you write, everywhere you look.
1: Well, even Michelle Obama said defined herself as mom-in-chief. She's an esteemed lawyer, but she said that's going to be my role, it's, particularly while I'm in, in the White House. Irene? I think the case with Michelle Obama is interesting because as the first lady, her position was very political,
0: right? And she had to make sure that people were comfortable with her as the first African-American first lady, right? So she was playing part of a script that's already been laid out for her. In terms of this kind of emphasis now on this lifestyle, that's, I think, also very much driven by celebrity culture and the fact that you have a lot of, like, very wealthy, very privileged white women having children and marketing That experience. So, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow has become incredibly adept, right, with her goop enterprise at kind of framing the kind of motherhood that she sees as like good motherhood. And so there's a lot of like emulating of that now, right? And it's so market based, it's such a part of like marketing and capitalism and the ways in which um, these economic structures continue
1: to define what is proper motherhood. So I'm going to pause you there and play a cut from Kris Jenner. You may know her as a momager. This is an interview from CNN style November the 2015 and she's talking about dealing with being a mom and manager to her children. Well, I think it's definitely a balance being a mom and then being a manager. When you do a reality show like we do, it's
3: kind of fair game. And I think that from the very beginning, we just decided to let it all hang out in order to have a great presence, you know, on the show.
1: Kris Jenner, of course, is the head of the Kardashian clan if people are not paying attention to their pop culture, Michael. So picking up from both Rene and Rachel, how uh, has this lifestyle come
2: to be? I mean, it's bizarre. <laughs> in that <laughs> clip, you can hear her admit exactly what my colleagues have just described, right? She's basically saying we, we're prioritizing shaping pitching this family as product, right. and there's no line between the two, right? Mm-hmm. This is the product we're selling, and that takes precedent over all the other things. The other thing I wonder about about this lifestyle question, and it's a question for folks who are mothers more than it is for me, perhaps this is why I can answer it, is despite all the flaws and all the problems with pitching motherhood as a lifestyle, I wonder if there are some collective identity and community-building benefits that go along with this consumption? Because not all the fact that you consume something doesn't make it a terrible thing, right, in and of itself, right? No I'm, Are there some ways in which, I'm, I'm curious, no, there, I'm and curious. There are, some are there ways some to ways to, that yeah, it... Yeah,
3: there's some <clears throat> ways to consume things that even completely yeah. change the intended meaning. However, I do want to quickly pick up on what you said about turning it into a product and mention something that hasn't come up yet, which is Mommy blogs, yes. right? Yes. So people mm-hmm. like blog about their kids, put pictures of their kids mm-hmm. that often like totally violate their kids' privacies in hopes that people will buy advertising on their pages and so on. So it is being stitched into the system. But I think Michael's point is incredibly important that there are ways people take these things and make use of them that are not necessarily the way the creators intended them to be used. For example, I don't know, one of these shows, what if a group of women, like, they gather together to watch the show, and in the meantime, it spars, like, really, really important and empowering conversations among themselves about parenting and other things.
2: Especially when when you consider for folks who are staying at home and raising kids – so much of the conversation around that history is about a story of isolation, yes. right, for the Absolutely. women who are in the home and the only p- conversation partners, the only real emotional attachment they have all day is with their children. Mm-hmm. So maybe in creating this lifestyle, it's building bridges between them and other moms at different life stages, perhaps. perhaps. I-, I don't know, but I'm just saying as a possibility that that could be going on.
1: Well, I will mention that there, though this movie was criticized for cliches everywhere, Tyler Perry's The Single Mother's Club got a lot of attention for that because as one critic critical reviewer said hey i think he's done it all wrong but What he proved is that there was a group of mothers that could come together and talk about some issues that were common to them and support each other to reduce the isolation that you've just mentioned, Michael. That there is isolation, and then they sort of found their way. They were all single mothers by either choice or circumstance, and so there was a lot of discussion about that. But mostly it was about a sort of support network for each of them, and they discovered they could co-parent, you know, they could help each other in that way. And so it did become a community. Well, we're going to leave the conversation there with how pop culture is dealing with this anyway. Obviously, this is a conversation we could have again and again as we get more examples of it. And that we didn't even touch on, you know, what's in books and some other things. So next year, next let, year. let's mm-hmm. gather again <laughs> and, and take, take a look at this subject. I thank you all for joining me today. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Michael Jeffries is a professor of American Studies at Wellesley College. Rachel Rubin is a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. and Irene is an associate professor of women's and gender studies at Wellesley College. Coming up, gifts for moms shouldn't be reserved just for Mother's Day, especially with all the unique goods being made right here in Boston by local artists. Find out what's hot in the world of handmade. That's next, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.